Hey listeners, welcome to General Education, your favorite USC news podcast. I'm Sean Flannelly, guest hosting for Natalie. Today we are talking about the event that has taken over USC's campus all weekend, the LA Times Festival of Books. Later I will be joined by news writer Brianna Grubb, but first, let's explore some of what has made the festival this weekend such a popular destination. From Karamo Brown to Chelsea Clinton to Roxanne Gay, writers of all disciplines spoke at different venues around the festival. Independent bookstores, authors, and media outlets dotted the campus as well, trying to get their name and work out to the public. I spoke to Jay Ladzorn Jr., who said it's often difficult to sell books as an unsigned author at such a huge festival. <laughs> I was telling these guys, I'm humiliated, you know, because we put all this work into this stuff, and of course it's very hard to get a foothold in the marketplace and get people interested, and there's so much competition. But, you know, I'm in a place in my life where I could afford to be here, and I, I'm willing to give my books away if anyone wants to read them, you know. So, uh, and, and I really do love books, so, you know, it's kind of fun to be here. I also spoke with a worker from Haymarket Books, a nonprofit publisher that flew out from Chicago for the festival. They described themselves as radical and published social justice-oriented books and essays. Just being around so many people who are excited about books, who are excited about reading, um, and publishers as well who are doing interesting things, you know, it's great to have that exchange and to be able to be face-to-face with people who are you know, part of a literary community in all its diversity. So, Set up adjacent to the main walkway at the festival was a poetry stage where I caught renowned poet Terrence Hayes reading from his most recent collection, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. Whether it's B-boys or Du Bois who can say black folk are blacker than the smoke they smoke and adrift in the ash history rips upon, someone deserves a song or a movie, someone send Spike Lee who can say what it is to be necrified, whose camera constitutes an excellent pornography of browner parties, who can say when set upon the night ends when daybreak makes the best of the better partings of we, who can say, as I have said, when I thought, but not so often, racism was done for, and I was done with history and historians who can say what and why men white as smoke did as they did with folk the Bible says are kin to me and if revised accordingly the Bible claims are kind to me and kind of like me being chased by them who say you belong to me and to whom I say I only belong to longing. Now we're turning to talk to news writer Brianna Grubb. She covered a talk on the Festival of Books main stage with LA Times owner Patrick Soon Xiong. The billionaire cancer doctor purchased the LA Times last year and spoke to a crowd of festival goers Saturday afternoon about the future of the paper. <laughs> um, yeah, so you wrote this article about um, Patrick Soon Xiong. Who is Patrick Soon Xiong and why did he purchase the LA Times? Yeah, of course. Um, so I honestly didn't know a ton about him before writing the story. I heard like the LA Times was under new ownership and people were pretty excited about it but I didn't know who he was really. Um, And then writing the piece, I obviously did my research. He was born and raised in South Africa. And so like he was telling us he, he's a doctor now, a surgeon. He works at UCLA as a professor. And when he was there, he went to med school and then he was the first Chinese intern because it was all white, all white hospitals. And he had to work for like half of what all the white people made, which was crazy. Um, So it was kind of cool that he, like, went into that and spoke about his identity as, like, 
a non-white person in South Africa at that time. And um, it kind of just showed like how he, it's influenced every part of his life and how he learned about empathy. Um, But then he moved here, he moved to Los Angeles and he works in biotech. He uh, found, he invented this drug that helps cancer and he sold it for a lot of money. So now he's a billionaire um, and he's a philanthropist. And he just bought the LA Times. I think the deal was finalized last June. Um, But the story that he told when he was on stage is about how he was at this symposium in Marina del Rey overseeing 200 doctors and working at the symposium. It was Super Bowl weekend. And Tronk, who was the owners of the paper at that time, came to him and said, okay, we're about to shut down the Washington Bureau, cut it, cut the paper down to a news force of only 300 people. You can fix this. You can buy the paper, but you only have 48 hours to decide if you want to or not. And so it was really hectic. He, he was telling us about how he had this secret room in the back of the symposium and he was working on getting the deal together. And um, he felt that the, he had already seen the paper deteriorate, deteriorate so much that he needed to do something like as a Los Angelino and as an immigrant um, to help the local news. And so that's why he bought it. Um, I'd just like to pause for a minute and apologize. You might be hearing Festival of Books player Lily Waters behind me right now, um, if there's any music. Okay, so who else spoke at the event on Saturday, and what did Patrick discuss? Yeah, so Patrick was in conversation with the executive editor of the LA Times, uh, Norman Perlstein. Um, And so the two kind of went back and forth about... Patrick's background, why he bought the paper, kind of the future of the paper, and then they also opened it up for a live Q&A at the end. Um, They talked a lot about issues that the LA Times wants to start covering um, since the LA Times covers all of Southern California. (laughs) There's only so much they can do, but they want to go really deep on certain issues, and climate change was brought up more than once, immigration income equality, um, other broad issues like that that affect all of their readers. And in your article, you also talked about how um, Patrick has shifted the revenue model of the LA Times. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it's a little bit more mission-based than actual business-based, this shift. But moving from Tronk ownership to Patrick's ownership of the paper, um, they're really now focused on subscribers instead of advertisers as their main source of revenue and so in the past the paper has been focused solely on getting ad dollars from people who are buying ads and so they've really catered to what the advertisers want moving forward the la times is really wanting to focus on its subscribers and so they're trying to extract the bulk of their revenue from readers um paying readers and so they kind of like joked around when they were discussing this like this isn't a pitch but it is a pitch you all need to subscribe um but that's kind of the shift in the mission and so then the bulk of the revenue kind of reflects that shift um and what were Perlstein's main points when he talked like uh where does he see the paper going forward in the future as opposed to Patrick Mm -hmm. for the most part they were really in agreement especially on having coverage of really specific issues that affect all of the audience and all of the readership. Um, So like, again, he brought up climate change, immigration, income inequality, a few other issues that like he wants to see the LA Times go like very deep on their coverage of. Um, He was asked a little bit about local news. And so his response was, you know, we can't do it all. We're going to cover what's newsworthy and what applies to all of our readers. Um, He discussed that a lot. 
they also spoke about kind of some digital efforts um but they didn't they honestly did not go into into a ton of detail on that um and then Pearlstein also talked about kind of the ethics of journalism a little bit since he is a journalist himself so like he got a question about the Me Too movement um one person in the audience was like do you feel that the LA Times' coverage paid enough attention to the assumption of innocence of the men accused. And um, Pearlstein, I thought he answered really well. He said, you know, as journalists, we seek to tell the truth to people. If something's newsworthy and an accusation is newsworthy, we're going we're gonna to report on it. Um, ultimately, we keep the presumption of innocence, but it's up to the courts and <laughs> the legal procedures. We're just reporting the news. And you mentioned that um, audiences were criticizing them a little bit. How did how did the audience in general respond to um, this conversation that they had? The two got a ton of applause when it came to like diminishing fake news, local coverage, having a strong voice for not LA but the greater nation as a whole. Um, they got a ton of applause on that. There were a few audience members that kind of like the man who brought up the Me Too movement um, were a little bit disgruntled. Uh, another example is one audience member, she was asking about some letters she had written to the paper about government torture that was happening to her family in Los Angeles, and the man who was holding the mic, like, literally had to pull it away from her. She was, like, and she continued yelling, um, but Pearlstein answered, I thought, really respectfully, and his rebuttal was, yes, we received your letters, we read them, but we did not feel that with such... We have to decide with our resources what to report on um, because we can't write about everything. And he just said that it was not news that was worthy of the LA Times reporting. Yeah, and I know you talked to some audience members after the event. Um, What did they tell you? Yeah, so I got the chance to speak with a woman named Brianna Johnson. Uh, She graduated from USC in 2018, spring of 2018. And she actually asked... Pearlstein about local news coverage and if she, um, how he felt about it during the talk. Um, and then after, she was, she was definitely impressed with both of them and really optimistic about the future of the times. And she said she loved Patrick um, Shun Xiong. Uh, but she was, she was left feeling still a little bit concerned about local news coverage because the lack of it can lead to so much corruption um so that was her concern walking away from the event yeah and i i assume you spent some time walking around the general festival as well could you talk a little bit about your impressions of the festival as a whole yeah so i actually had the opportunity to volunteer later in the afternoon at one of the information booths um i'm an ambassador for annenberg and so a group of us volunteered all together and they were so excited for us to help because a lot of the attendees were very lost. <laughs> so we could lead them in the right direction. But for the most part, everyone was having a great time. Um, there were tons of events, book signings, speakers. So people were looking for help finding those. I was in the children's area uh, right next to the child stage. And so a lot of child authors did readings and there were skits. And the, all the kids were having a blast. And they all, most of them were walking away with books in their hands. Um, so it seemed like just like a really heartwarming event for, you know, families with young kids and then grandparents age people um and it looks like people were having a lot of fun awesome well thank you for covering the event and thank you so much for joining me brianna thanks bye 
Thank you for listening. You can find Brianna's article online at dailytrojan.com. We'll see you next Tuesday on General Education. All right. You guys know the words, no excuses. Let's make this whole festival sing. This podcast was produced by Sean Flannelly, Natalie Bettendorf, Catherine Yang, and Alan Pham.